This is History West Midlands. Beginning in 2018, History West Midlands has sponsored researchers, led by Dr Malcolm Dick of the University of Birmingham, in an exploration of different and previously unreported facets of the complex life and personality of James Watt, the Scottish engineer who became an icon of the Industrial Revolution. Searching voluminous archives at the Library of Birmingham, one of these researchers, Dr Stephen Mullen of Glasgow University, looked beyond the heroic figure of Watt the engineer and developer of the steam engine to the time before he moved to Birmingham to join Matthew Bolton in their historic partnership. Dr Mullen spent months delving into more than 50 years of little-studied correspondence from Watt, his father James Watt Sr., and his brother John about their extensive involvement in transatlantic mercantile trade with the North American colonies and the sugar plantations of the Caribbean. As Dr Mullen now tells our publisher, Mike Gibbs, these letters and accounts reveal a dark side to the story of the Watt family. They provide clear evidence that for three generations, Watt, his father and his son were not only complicit in the slave trade, they participated directly and benefited extensively from the profits that slavery generated. I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Mullen, a historian from the University of Glasgow, for what I think is going to be a surprising and perhaps even controversial view of one of the great heroes, as he's regarded, of the Industrial Revolution, James Watt. Stephen looks at Watt from an unusual angle, as a colonial entrepreneur, and that had been his family's life and career in Greenock in Scotland. Stephen, welcome. Could you begin by giving us a brief picture of the family into which James Watt was born in 1736? Well, we know that that James Watt, he hailed from a lower middling family. His paternal grandfather, Thomas, was was probably a teacher uh, of mathematics and navigation. So, he lived in Cartsdyke, which is just east of Greenock. Greenock itself was a small village at the opening of the 18th century, but it's really transformed into the premier sugar trading port on the west coast of Scotland. So we can see how this commercial transformation is affecting the Watt family. Watt's father, James Watt Sr., ultimately becomes involved with transatlantic commerce. His father seems to be multi-skilled because we know he's a joiner in the 1720s, but ultimately he diversifies. We think in the early 1730s he diversifies into the mercantile trades. And I think the research I was able to do in the Wolfson and his father's records, it allows us to burst at least, well, this is the first myth, because the Watt family biographer, J.P. Muirhead, he calls his father a shipwright, a ship chandler, who supplied vessels with nautical apparatus and a builder and a merchant. Well, he is of all of that, of course, but only by getting into the records and the Wilson and looking into the primary sources do we see the full range of his transatlantic enterprise. 
And as we know, he's involved, heavily involved in supplying planters across the slave economies of North America and North Carolina and in the West Indies. And what was the significance of the transatlantic trade in Greenock? Well, I say, I mean, Britain overall, I mean, in the 17th century, certainly transatlantic commerce is fundamental to English economic development from really from the mid 17th century onwards. We have the trade in slave grown produce and also grown by indentured servants, tobacco, sugar, and ultimately cotton. We know that the transatlantic slave trade at this point is centred in London with the Royal African Company. So we can see it's very much English dominated, but Scots were desperate for their own slice of empire. We know that Scots try to establish their own colonies. Darien, for example, in Panama in the 1690s, it's an economic failure. But ultimately, the Union of 1707 provides Scots with free access to the already established English Empire. It's part of the, the bait that covers the hook, according to Fletcher e. Salton. Free trade with the English Empire is Article 4 of the Union. It was the big lure. So this gives Scots access to the triangular trade, of course, the transatlantic slave trade, but also opens up these colonies. What was the triangular trade? Triangular trade is a very simple term for what was a complex system of international human trafficking. Manufactured goods would go from Britain, including Greenock, we can come on to that in a minute. The goods would then go to Africa, they'd be traded for captured Africans who were then subjected to the Middle Passage and there they would be taken into chattel slavery in the colonies. Um, in the Caribbean, of course, Barbados is one of the premier sugar islands, Jamaica, but also tobacco-grown regions and in North America, Virginia, North Carolina, which in fact... James Watt's father becomes involved in. Greenock becomes an important part of the Scottish story of empire because it is the main sugar port. The produce that is landed at Greenock, Greenock's, well, it's got numerous harbours built at the early 18th century. The produce is landed at Greenock. We also know that a small number of transatlantic slave voyages would have departed Greenock. Uh, we think when James Watt was a child, there would have been some transatlantic slave trade voyages. Um, how was the trade organised in Greenock and elsewhere? Well, we think certainly it would have been English trade would have been dominated by large joint stock companies, as well as numerous other smaller firms. But the opening of the 18th century, I mean, post-Union Scots are really trying to catch up. The English trade is already established for a century. In the 1730s, there is one big joint stock company in Glasgow. But I think James Watt's father, he wouldn't have been involved in the larger scale enterprises because as far as I can see, he's only in his own partnership. He seems to be a sole trader. He then, he depends on a system of Atlantic trading called the supercargo system. And I'll define that. A supercargo might be a ship's captain or a young man. They would be granted legal authority by the resident merchant. In this case, it was James Watt Sr. He sends out this young man with, you know, the agreement that allows the supercargo to purchase, sell and ship goods across the Atlantic. So he's sending over the young man to do his dirty work across the Atlantic. 
And we have a letter here from James Watts Sr. is writing to a... Well, James Watson is his supercargo. It's a young man from Greenock. And the letter says... Sir, you are hereby empowered as my agent and supercargo to proceed with the cargo of goods now on board and dispose of to the best advantage for my interest, partly at Boston and partly at North Carolina, as you find the markets to consider and agreeable. But that letter demonstrates, I mean, Watson then had legal authority to conduct what senior's business in the colonies, and he resides in North Carolina on a semi-permanent basis. Uh, I think for about five years, because I went through in some detail his correspondence, which are now in the Wolfson Centre from 1738 onwards. We know that he purchases a ship, and this allows him to trade up to Boston from North Carolina and the east coast of America. But also, we know that the war enterprise extends to the West Indies, Barbados and Antigua in particular. And was slavery, therefore, at the heart of the family enterprise? Well, I think it's it's perfectly obvious. I mean, there's a fire in 1740 and there's an inventory taken of James Watson's enterprise and, by extension, James Watts Sr. So I think the trade would have been based around the supply of foodstuffs, pork in particular, but also claret, rum, molasses and beef. But we need to be clear, a major section of the business would have been the trade in slave-grown produce, the tobacco, the cotton... Uh, and sugar. So we see they'd have been trading with the planters in North Carolina and Barbados, and they would have been sending out produce from Scotland. Dumbling linen, for example. Certainly slavery would have been the economic foundation of the business. We also know that the enterprise really extends to the direct importation of enslaved people. I've only found a few examples of the direct importation. Direct importation into Scotland of slaves. Well, there is. I mean, well, firstly, he's involved... I've got some examples of intercolonial slave trading, one or two examples of that. They're sending a young man from North Carolina to Jamaica, and I also know that his supercargo is purchasing enslaved people in St Christopher in the West Indies. But we also, I mean, I'll come on to it in a minute, but also the two younger Watts, James Watt, or James Watt, and John Watt, his brother known as Jockey, they're involved in the slave trade, they're importing black people into Scotland. But we can come on to that in a minute. I mean, there are very few recorded examples of this, of the intercolonial slave trade, and the Watt papers in the Wilson allows us to get a glimpse into the working practices of these Scottish slave traders. I should say the extent of it seems to be quite small, and I've only been able to find a few examples, but certainly the bigger, wider enterprise would have been based around the trade in slave-grown produce, the tobacco and the sugar. And how important to the Watt family was the income from this slave trade? It's hard to gauge, simply because James Watt Sr. seems to have had a bankruptcy event at some point, in his life. I think it was maritime in nature. It certainly involved a failure at some point. And also, I haven't been able to find any record of a will, a testament, or an inventory for his father. So I have no idea how much of a fortune he left at any point. 
But what I can say, we know his transatlantic business extends for about 20 years. He's able to make some investments in his two sons in particular and subsidise their training. So I think he's very wealthy at one point. I mean, absolutely. Even if I don't have the the final inventory and in death that shows he died wealthy. Perhaps he didn't. So James Watts Sr., yeah. James Watts' father, subsidised his education. How much of that do we think came from slavery and the profits from slavery? Yeah, again, I mean, it's probably impossible to gauge. It would be very difficult uh, to measure what actually proportion of his father's wealth came from slavery, but we can say he's a wealthy colonial merchant, absolutely, over a long period. But certainly we do know that when James Watt travels to London in 1755, he is able to find uh, someone to train him as a toolmaker, a John Morgan. So I think the price is 20 guineas. I mean, that sounds a trivial amount, £21 sterling. But when you look at it, it's seven years' wages for a male servant in Lanarkshire in the mid-18th century. I mean, this is this is quite a substantial number. To put that into comparison as well, we know that Watt trains for a year in London. He then goes back to Glasgow. Before he goes back to Glasgow, he bills his father, or at least sends him an invoice for tools that he needs. So his father subsidised not just his education, but he's effectively purchasing them the means of production to allow him to get into business. So the tools were £23. So if you take together the cost for the education and the tools, and I've put this into the Measure and Worth website, it shows you that that £44 sterling could be worth around £82,000 in 2018 in a contemporary value. So the idea that James Watt came from a humble background, you know, and it's a rags to riches story, it really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. What we're seeing here is an expensive education in London. It's underwrote by his father, who is a wealthy colonial merchant of long standing with extensive transatlantic interests, and he's subsidising it, and it's allowing him to start work in Glasgow in 1756. And, of course, the rest is history. How did James Watt and his brother become involved in their father's business? Well, James Watt's mother, Agnes, dies in 1753 and he goes to Glasgow to train or learn the mercantile trades under his uncle, John Muirhead. So he's in Glasgow's early 1750s. So as far as I can see, he's managing his father's account in Glasgow quite quickly. And we need to remember at this point, Glasgow is really in the verge of its golden age of tobacco. When Glasgow, Port Glasgow and Greenock, they're important more tobacco from the Chesapeake than anywhere else in Britain. Glasgow is the premier tobacco port. It is a city defined by transatlantic connections. What is stepping into an imperial space? And he goes to London, we know that, a couple of other brief sojourns, but he's there almost permanently until he goes to Birmingham, we know, in 1774. And I think he's managing his father's account in that time as well as his involvement with the University of Glasgow. His brother is John Jockey, as he was known. He was three years younger, and I think he trains as a bookkeeper. It's also apparent that James Watt is a skilled bookkeeper as well. You know, I've looked at some of the accounts that he sends to his father. You know, he's, he's skilled in bookkeeping. But I think the younger brother was being groomed to take over the father's business. 
We know there's two different trajectories, but Jockey certainly moves around British ports. He goes to Liverpool, he goes to Bristol, and ultimately he goes to America and the West Indies. And in fact, he actually, he drowns off a ship, falls off a ship at Havana and drowns in 1762. But James Watt takes a different trajectory. Obviously, he goes to London and he becomes a skilled toolmaker. During this time that they're both involved in the business, yeah. what involvement did they have in slavery and slave owning? Well, it seems to me they're certainly managing the father's account. There's no question um, about that. I've identified one example where the Watt Enterprise imported a young black child into Greenock in 1762. I should say that the importation of black people into 18th century Scotland was not uncommon. These young black children would have been used as page boys and gentry houses. And these records show, I mean, the records that are in the Wilson, they show that this young child, he would have been going to the Brodies of Spiney, and that's near Elgin. So we can see these merchants in the west coast of Scotland. They would have been important young black, usually young black boys, and they would have been sending them up to country houses, you know, in the Scottish countryside. For domestic service? Yep, they would have been overwhelmingly used as domestic servants. Sometimes they would have been seen as a as a demonstration of a gentry family's wealth, like a status symbol. But we thought that it was only Jockey involved on his own, but there is actually one letter in 1762. 3rd October 1762, a James Brodie writes to James Watt Jr. merchant in Greenock, and he requests in this letter... I am surprised I have never heard anything of any black boy. If he has not gone north, I beg you'll send him by the first opportunity directed for Brodie House near Forest. I shall be glad to have your answer in course of post and an account of what he has cost you since his arrival at Greenock and the cost of my letters. I am sensible you've been at a great deal of trouble upon my account. I shall be glad of the opportunity to show my gratitude. So I think that... We can see here, I mean, this letter is addressed directly to James Watt Jr. It is unambiguous. So the correspondence reveals not only is he aware that his father's business involves occasional slave trading, importation of black people to Scotland, but in fact, James Watt Jr. was involved as well. I mean, the letter makes clear he thanks James Watt Jr. for his involvement on the account and he actually asks him to bill him for the young child's stay in Scotland before he arrives. So how did you discover this new insight into what? Yeah, well, I spent about a week in Birmingham and the Watt family papers and the Wilson and the Library of Birmingham, they're very well catalogued. But when I spoke to the archivist, she told me that no one ever really went through his father's records, you know, the North Carolina papers. They had been undertouched. So I was able to photograph them and I spent many months going through the correspondence. I was able to drill down and actually get a real understanding of the nature and extent of the transatlantic business. For example, I was able to get through the correspondence from the supercargo, James Watson. He's obviously based in North Carolina. He's writing back to Greenock and it's telling us about, you know, the nature of the business. Here's what it's based on. We're supplying the planters. We're also occasionally 
train enslaved people. So you really need to get into the early 18th century. The story of James Watt begins, you know, in the his father's business in the 1730s onwards when Watt as a child. This is an integral part of James Watt rise, which for me it's under-acknowledged. Also what seems to be important is that James Watt is involved in different ways. We know that he's involved in the, the importation of the young black page boy, but Watt has got other connections with slavery in the Atlantic world. We know in the 1750s he manages a tobacco account for his father, so he's actually managing this account. I mean, it's dealing with the trade in slave-grown produce, but also the very first opportunity that Watt has is through instruments that are sent home, astronomical instruments that are sent home by a Jamaican planter. Alexander McFarlane was a, his alumnus of Old College, so he sends home astronomical instruments that he had used in Jamaica. I mean, these are high level, you know, they're on a par with the observatory at Greenwich, you know, they're top level instruments. He sends them home to the University of Glasgow on a ship, but they're damaged due to the sea and the transportation. So they know a handy toolmaker. He's resident in old college. He's trained, of course, because he's been in London for a year and what cleans the instruments, the McFarlane instruments, and actually, that leads to the McFarlane Observatory at Old College. So we can see in different ways. I mean, James Watt is directly complicit in slavery and its commerce through the importation, through the tobacco account. But even his toolmaking career starts off. You know, you can see that slavery is pervasive across Glasgow at this time. Why do you think other historians haven't done that research? Speaking as a... As a Scotland of Scotland and the Atlantic world, I would say that the Scottish connections with transatlantic slavery are only really becoming known in the last maybe 20 years or so. So I was able to use my own expertise and put a new angle in James Watt, have a think about what these Scots are doing, and then put it into the proper Atlantic world context. Was Watt worried by slavery? Did he have any conscience or don't we know? That's the big question. I mean, James Watt is this enlightened, you know, hero of the Industrial Revolution. But let's put that in a context at Glasgow at the time. Absolutely, the, the economic foundation of the city of Glasgow's growth is the tobacco trade in particular, but also sugar and ultimately cotton. So, I mean, it's the economic foundation is slavery. But at the same time, Old College, now the University of Glasgow, develops a reputation as an abolitionist centre. So we get three philosophers, Francis Hutchison, Adam Smith, and John Miller. They're writing the first moral and economic critiques of chattel slavery. Francis Hutchison was a professor in moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow, and he dies in 1746. So this is before Watt arrives in Glasgow. But his book, A System in Moral Philosophy, is published in 1755, just as Watt's in Glasgow. This is the first moral critique of chattel slavery. So what we can see is, if you contextualise this with what's stay in Glasgow with the publication of this book, Old College has developed my reputation as the centre of the philosophical opposition to chattel slavery, just at the same time as James Watt is involved in the importation of a young black page boy. He's managing a tobacco account and he's involved with his father's enterprise. So is James Watt as enlightened as we think? And this enlightened man 
comes to Birmingham after Glasgow, establishes the famous partnership with Bolton and Watt. Does his business in Scotland continue after he came here? Well, I should say that my own research into the primary sources at the Wilson, I stopped in 1774, so I'm relying on the work of other historians, you know, just in the course of my research, I, I read much about Bolton and Watt, the steam engines. So I'm not in a position to make a comprehensive judgment about the Bolton and Watt enterprise, but we know historians, Eric Williams, famous Caribbean historian, he cites the Bolton and Watt steam engine, he cites it as an example that was funded by West India Capital because he sees that Bolton and Watt were financed in 1778 by the banking house of Raymond Williams via Loan Fletcher. So this was a mercantile banking house based in the city of London. The main business of the bank was West India Commerce. So for Eric Williams, Bolton and Watt are a key example of the multiplier effects of West India Commerce. It's generating large reserves of surplus capital. It is then loaned to these industrial entrepreneurs. It's providing them with the capital to make the industry work. And of course, we know it does. So I think at first glance, I mean, some historians have said that Bolton and Watt had little direct involvement with Caribbean slavery. But in fact, closer inspection sees here, we can see how that the profits of slavery through the banking is closely intertwined with British commerce and industry through these multiplier effects. And what about the Bolton and Watt steam engines? Do they find a place on the plantations, either during yeah. James Watt's life or when his son has taken over the business? Yeah, I think absolutely. Again, I'm relying on the work of historians here. So I've been reading the work of Veront Satchel and Jennifer Tan. So they have examined the impact of the Bolton Watt steam engines in the Caribbean. I think the important point here, according to Tan, is that James Watt retires in 1800. And for both Satchel and Tan, the first export of the Bolton Watt steam engine to the Caribbean comes in 1803. So this is just after Watt retires, but we know, of course, his son, and as well as Matthew Robinson Bolton, they take over the business. So we think around 120 steam engines ultimately make their way to the Caribbean, British Guyana, Jamaica, Trinidad. This is the highest demand out with the cotton industry in Great Britain. The Caribbean planters provide, you know, this is a major export market for the Bolton and Watt steam engine. Satchel in particular goes into the benefits to slave owners. Well, we know before it was sugar production was overwhelmingly based on wind power and water power, backed up by cattle. And efficient and expensive in terms of animal power and manpower, both free and in slaves. But the steam engines, you need to remember, this is the abolitionist period as well, from 1807 onwards up to the emancipation of slavery in 1834. This is helping the slave owners squeeze the last profits from sugar production. These more reliable steam engines, it's allowing greater profits to be taken out and it's a reaction by these planters to really domestic and international pressures. So reviewing your research, what does it tell us about how ubiquitous slavery and the 
finance generated by slavery was within the British economy during James Watt's life and that of his son. Well, I think the, the James Watt story is fascinating because it shows that the prophecy of slavery could have really influenced industrial development in ways that are not immediately obvious. If you look at previous historians, their methodologies have looked at direct investments by slave owners or slave traders or merchants. Other historians have looked at you know, national statistics, for example, sugar. So these are ways to try and measure you know, the influence of slavery on British economic development. But this is, we can see here, beginning through these many dozens of his father's records, we know that his father's a wealthy colonial merchant, we don't know how much, but we can certainly, we can call this the seed corn funding from the profits of slavery. We know when James Watt was in London in 1755, he was dependent, I mean, the correspondence is clear, he's dependent on his father for subsidising his subsistence and education. In October 1755, he sends a letter that says, I will very soon want money. My living here is very hard upon you, especially as trade is so dull at present. But I'm improving all I can, that I may be the sooner able to do for myself. James Watt's father's investing in his two sons, expensive education. This expertise then ultimately contributes to the improvement of the steam engine. The big question is, would that have been possible without his father's involvement with transatlantic commerce and slavery? And the other big question it poses as well, I mean, what is the wider impact of these sons of those that are rich from the profits of slavery? Um, what does it tell us about the way we should approach the heroes if you like, of the Industrial Revolution like James Watt? If we're in the business of iconoclasm, James Watt should be viewed as a hypocrite because we know he, he keeps a personal contradiction circumspect throughout his life. He was thoroughly complicit in his father's transatlantic business. We know he's involved with the importation of the black child. He oversees a tobacco account. Yet in the 1790s, He's calling slavery in the French Caribbean disgraceful to humanity and he's calling for its abolition. So I think one thing is clear for really from this course of research that I've went through, by providing this transatlantic context, by putting the narrative of James Watt in this Atlantic frame, the research should act as a counterbalance to the James Watt Fest, which is currently unfolding across the nation. I think it should act as a warning here against ignoring the colonial backgrounds and these celebrations of the dead great white men. So finally, how should we view James Watt today? Well, I think in the final analysis, it's pretty clear James Watt is comfortable with chattel slavery and the commerce around it. He's employed as his father's agent. He's directly involved elsewhere. So he's pretty comfortable with chattel slavery throughout his early career. And in fact, it provides the impetus he requires. If we could sum it up, it would be profits before morality. Stephen, thank you very much indeed for a really insightful, new and, one would say, revisionist view of this very important figure of the Industrial Revolution. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
You can learn more about James Watt in our new book, edited by Dr. Malcolm Dick, The Power to Change the World, James Watt, A Life in 50 Objects, which is available at our website, www.historywm.com, or from Amazon. On the website, you'll also find articles, podcasts, and films about Watt and his achievements, while our sister initiative, revolutionaryplayers.org.uk, provides free access to a unique digitized resource of prints, drawings, paintings, letters, and much more. Thank you.